mic. There we go. Perfect. All right. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. And you can find this on page 850 of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you if you need a Bible. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Uh, all the way through verse 11. Please stand with me, if you are able to, for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All of us want to be successful, don't we? Whether it's how well we do in school or what we accomplish in our career or a game that we play or a sport that we love or a side hustle that we're running or a portfolio that we're managing or our family life or our children. We want to be seen as having succeeded in life. Chasing success is what drives so much of our our society. We we all want to live lives that others admire. And there's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with accomplishing your goals. There's uh, nothing wrong with attaining a certain level of, of wealth and respect and favor in this world. But I was reminded this week that success doesn't necessarily equal significance. I saw a short clip this week of Tim Tebow making this very point. Mr. Tebow was a great college football player, and he was giving this year's commencement address at his alma mater, the University of Florida. And in that speech, he expressed his desire for the graduates of his former school to be successful. But he told them not to stop there. He encouraged him, or he encouraged them, in inspirational Tebow fashion, to live a life of significance. And 
I appreciated the distinction that he made. You see, there is a difference between success and true significance. There's a difference between attaining a certain level of wealth and respect and favor in this world and actually living a life that is truly worthy of attention. It is one thing to be successful. It's another thing altogether to have lived significantly. And we see that difference in the passage before us in Mark. What we find in the opening verses of Mark 14 is different people chasing different versions of success in life. But only one of those people is praised as having done something significant. Jesus unexpectedly praised a woman who shamelessly poured an entire flask of of ointment over him. He commended her action. It was deemed significant by him. And that's because she demonstrated that she had the right priorities in life. She had a passion for Jesus. And and though she was looked down upon by others, she was considered worthy of attention and praised by God. This woman's example teaches us that while others will inevitably disagree, we should worship Jesus sacrificially because He is the God who came to sacrifice Himself for us. And when we live that way, we live significant lives. True followers of Jesus aim for more than mere success in life. They aim for true significance. And, and that can only be found in a life of complete devotion to Christ. Now this morning we're going to explore what that kind of life looks like. Now by way of reminder, we find ourselves in the middle of the final week of Jesus' life on earth in Mark's Gospel. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday. On Monday he cleared out the temple. On Tuesday he addressed a number of controversial questions in the temple. He also gave a long discourse to his disciples about the future on the Mount of Olives. And we looked at that discourse in chapter 13 last week. Today we're in chapter 14, and in the portion of this gospel which deals with the events that people often refer to as the passion of Christ. That word passion comes from the Latin word which means to to suffer or to endure. And when we talk about the passion, we are referring to the betrayal and arrest, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. The opening verses of chapter 14 introduce us to this final and ultimate phase of our Lord's ministry on earth. Jesus had come for the passion. He had come to suffer and to sacrifice himself for something of utmost significance. He sacrificed himself for us. And in our passage today, we find a reflection of his sacrifice in the sacrifice of a woman. She shows us the way that we should also respond to our Savior and Lord. She provides us with a framework for how to live a significant life. And I want us to look at this passage in three sections. First, we'll consider the the setting. Then we'll look at the sacrifice. And finally, we'll take note of the scoundrel. The setting, the sacrifice, and the scoundrel. Now let's begin in verses 1 to 2 with the setting. We learn in verse 1 that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
The Passover, as most of you know, was the Jewish commemoration of God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. It reminded Israel of the day when God had his angel of death pass over the houses of the the Jewish people the same night that the firstborns of the Egyptians were killed. The Passover was an annual event that happened in the Jewish month of Nisan, specifically Nisan 14th and 15th. And it was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a time for Israel to remember how they had left Egypt in haste. They didn't even have enough time for leaven to cause their bread to rise. This feast lasted from Nisan 15th through the 21st. So together, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration. Preparations for the Passover would begin on the 14th of Nisan, when the Passover lambs were killed. The majority of those killings would be on Thursday of Passion Week. And then the actual Passover meal would occur after sunset that same day. Now, since the Jews marked New Days at sunset instead of midnight like the Romans and we do today, the Passover meal would be on Thursday evening, but it would actually be considered the next day, and it's on the 15th. So the Passover event spanned two days on the Jewish calendar. But the slaughtering and the eating of the Passover lamb may have all taken place on Thursday of this final week of Jesus' ministry because of the ways or the way that the Jews viewed their, their days. Sunset to sunset versus midnight to midnight. And in verse 1, we learn that we are now two days away from this Passover event. Two days can be an inclusive term, meaning that the day after tomorrow. We, we have an example of this when we say that Jesus rose from the dead three days later. He died on Friday, right? and three days later he rose on Sunday. That terminology is inclusive of the bookend days. Three days means Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and that's likely what we have here. So two days before the Passover event was likely Wednesday. Now, Matthew provides us with a bit more information in his gospel. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 26, verse 2, we learn that it was Jesus who actually told his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and then he added, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So these time markers that we are given in Mark 14 and Matthew 26 tell us that Jesus' death was coming very shortly. It was coming in two days, and Jesus knew it. He knew he was about to be delivered up on the cross for our sins. And this would happen in part because of the religious leaders of Israel who had been trying to hunt down Jesus. Look at the end of verse 1. Mark writes there, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now that verb seeking is in the imperfect tense. And that just means these leaders had been seeking Jesus already, and they were continuing to do so. This wasn't something they had just started doing. They had had it out for Jesus for a while. They just hadn't found the right opportunity. But he was continually on their minds. And they didn't just want to arrest him. They were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They wanted to completely eliminate him. And they wanted to do so in private. Because they knew they didn't yet have the support of the people. They said in verse 2, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar, a riot from the people. The leaders knew that Jerusalem was packed with Jewish pilgrims at that time. Estimates vary widely, but 
During Passover, there were probably at least two to three times the number of normal Jews in Jerusalem. And as a result, Rome would typically send a strong military presence to that area. That's why the Roman governor Pilate was in the area. He would usually make it a point to travel down to Jerusalem from Caesarea to keep an eye on things during this time of the year. And and that made sense if you were Rome, because you had a mass of people gathering together to remember a seminal event in their history in which God had delivered them from foreign oppressors. This was a time of the year in which the Romans were particularly sensitive to what was happening among the Jewish people. Any sign of riot, any any sign of uproar would certainly be quickly quelled and the leaders behind it would be accountable as well. So even though the chief priests and scribes were, were very concerned about what Jesus was saying about them and about their management of the temple, they didn't want to incur the wrath of the people or the wrath of Rome. They were concerned about losing their influence to Jesus, and they were concerned about losing their positions in Rome. And if you think about it, they were, they were concerned about their success in life. Their vision of success was one of self-preservation. They wanted to keep the status quo because they had reached a level of achievement and respect and wealth, and they didn't want to see it go. So they were hunting Jesus. That's the setting. Jesus was being hunted. But the leaders were in a pickle. And they didn't know how to quietly put away Jesus. It seems like they were resigned to waiting until after the feast. But in verses 10 through 11, we find that they were given a solution to their dilemma from an unlikely source. Judas, one of Jesus' own, opened up an avenue for eliminating Jesus that had previously seemed closed. But before we get there, we find sandwiched between these two sections an account of a woman sacrificially anointing Jesus in verses 3 to 9. And we move from the setting in which Jesus was being hunted to the sacrifice where Jesus was worshipped. The sacrifice. Now, in each of the Gospel accounts, we find a story very much like this one. Each of the Gospel writers in, includes an account of a woman who anoints Jesus with perfume. The account in Matthew 26 is essentially the same as the one in Mark. Both writers are clearly referencing the same event. However, the account at the end of Luke 7 is quite different. It shares a number of similarities with the other Gospel accounts, but there are some striking differences. The account in Luke seems to occur in Galilee instead of Bethany, which was in Judea. The woman in Luke is described as sinful, which isn't present in the other Gospels. The Pharisees are also present in Luke, and the focus of their complaint is not on the excess of the woman's offering, but rather on Jesus not seeming to realize that a sinful woman was doing this to him. The event recorded in Luke happens in a completely different context. So that means there were at least two different women who anointed Jesus in a similar way during his ministry. And that wouldn't necessarily be surprising because anointing an esteemed guest was proper social etiquette in those days. But that still leaves us with the account in John chapter 12. John's account is actually quite similar to Matthew's and Mark's, but there are some differences as well. 
If you want, you can turn there to see it for yourself. But in John chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus tells us that there was an anointing of Jesus by Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and it happened in Bethany. And John tells us that this occurred six days before the Passover. Now, you might be wondering, I thought Mark wrote that there was an anointing by a woman two days before the Passover. What's going on here? Well, what's likely happening is that Matthew, Mark, and John are all describing the same event. And it was an event that happened six days before the Passover. But Mark placed it a bit later in his gospel because he wanted to show the stark contrast between how the chief priests and the scribes and, and Judas were treating Jesus and how this woman was treating Jesus as he prepared to go to the cross. Mark put this event into another one of his narrative sandwiches where he kind of bookends a central event with two other events to make a point. He wanted to highlight this particular act of worship, and Matthew followed him in his gospel. He, Mark takes us back several days in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, to give us an example of how to rightly respond to Jesus when so many other people were wrongly responding to him. And this rearranging of events does sometimes happen in the gospels. Each of the gospel writers wrote with a specific purpose as they retold the story of Jesus' life on earth. And most scholars believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a bit less chronologically accurate than John in some places because of the specific message and impression they wanted their readers to have of Jesus. So, that all means that this unnamed woman in Mark is actually Mary. This woman was the friend of Jesus, the one who, who sat at his feet and, and listened to him teach. She was the one who trusted that Jesus could have saved her brother from death if he had just arrived a bit earlier. And this helps us to make sense of her act of sacrificial worship here in these verses. She was a woman who was in love with the Lord. She was a, a woman who listened to his word. She was a woman who didn't allow the busyness of life to distract her from Christ. She was a woman who trusted deeply in his power. She trusted deeply in his capabilities. And out of her love and devotion to Jesus, she performed one of the most memorable acts of worship in history. Today I want to bring your attention to several characteristics of her sacrifice. First, it was a bold sacrifice. It was a bold sacrifice. In verse 3, we learn that all this happened in Bethany. And Bethany was a town about two miles east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It was where Jesus stayed during his last week in Jerusalem. It was the location of his Airbnb there, if you will. And in Bethany was the house of a man named Simon. Simon was a common name, so he's identified here as the leper. And that probably means he was a former leper, but now healed. Because otherwise, it wouldn't have been socially acceptable for him to host a meal like this. Other than that, we don't know much about this Simon. Was, was he healed by Jesus? Was he the father or the relative of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? We just don't know. But this was clearly a home where those three siblings felt comfortable since John tells us Martha, as expected, was helping to serve the meal and Lazarus was dining there. Lazarus and 
Jesus and some of the other guests were reclining at the table. And that means they were in a kind of a side pose on the ground with their, their feet radiating out from the table. That was a customary way to enjoy meals in those days. And in the middle of this meal came Mary. And not to serve food, like her sister, which would have been acceptable. But she came in and interrupted this gathering to do something extraordinary. Mark writes that she came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. That was a bold, that was a shocking move. It was against social norms for a woman to barge into a meal like that, into a room full of men. It was also bold in the lavish way that it was done. And Jesus didn't, or Mary I should say, didn't come in and asked to simply pour a few drops of ointment on Jesus. That would kind of have been the normal way of anointing a guest. She actually broke her flask and emptied it over his head, and John tells us that it ran down to his feet as well, and she wiped it up with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary wasn't passive in this anointing. She didn't hesitate. She knew what she wanted to do. She was all in. And she walked into that room where she wasn't invited. She she was willing to do something socially awkward. She was audacious because she was passionate about Jesus. Mary's act was was a bold sacrifice. And, And that is the first aspect of her sacrifice that I want you to notice. It was a bold sacrifice. We also see in these verses that her act of worship was a costly sacrifice. It was a costly sacrifice. Notice in verse 3 that Mark describes the flask of ointment that Mary broke as very costly. It was ointment made of pure nard. And nard is an herb that is native to India, which would have made it hard to come by in the Middle East. This particular form was pure, and it was stored in a stone alabaster container. In verse 5, we learn that the ointment that Mary used was worth more than 300 denarii, or more than a year's salary of typical work. And so we are talking about a jar of perfume potentially worth tens of thousands of dollars. How Mary acquired this flask, we do not know. Perhaps it was a family heirloom, or maybe she went out and purchased it for this very occasion. We just aren't told. The main thing that we know is that it was pricey. And even for our Silicon Valley tastes, this was a spendy jar of nard. The fact that Mary used all of it on Jesus for only a few moments of anointing shows that she had counted the cost. She was willing to part with a sizable asset because she loved Jesus and wanted him to be honored. Her act of worship was a bold sacrifice, and, and it was a costly one. And the costly nature of it elicited a strong reaction from some of those present. They they considered Mary's act of worship a waste. They were opposed to what she did. So we find that Mary's sacrifice was a bold sacrifice. It was a costly sacrifice. And it was an opposed sacrifice. An opposed sacrifice. Look at verse 4. Mark writes that there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Why was the ointment wasted like that? Matthew tells us that these people were the disciples. 
John also tells us that one of them was Judas. Notice that these disciples did not merely disapprove of Mary's actions. They got mad at her. What she did made them angry. It made them indignant. They they were up in arms about this. They thought she was foolish. They thought she had wasted a a useful resource. And so they scolded her in verse 5. They said, this could have been given to the poor. And that's because taking care of the needy was a hallmark of Jewish religion. It was a sign of piety. It was a sign of devotion. John 13.29 tells us that it was a tradition to give gifts to the poor before Passover. These disciples opposed Mary's sacrifice because they thought there was a more prudent way to live for the Lord. Her action was viewed as reckless and irresponsible. Mary was berated for wasting this flask of ointment on Jesus. Now, I should mention that we don't find any indication that the disciples were against using some of this ointment on Jesus. seems that they were more appalled at Mary using all of it. If she poured out a few drops, perhaps that would have been acceptable. Maybe use a quarter of the flask. That might have been a little bit much, but still in the realm of reasonable stewardship. But all of it, just for some grand gesture, that that was foolish. That That was a legitimate reason for them to be mad. That justified a scolding. That was a waste. It wasn't just Judas. It was the other disciples who thought this way as well. Sometimes the strongest opposition to living fully for Jesus comes from those who follow Jesus themselves. It can come from believing parents, come from friends, come from pastors, authors, mentors. It can even be well-intentioned. But it can ultimately be misguided. There is a need for prudence in our decision-making for the Lord. But we have to be careful that we don't mistake our prudence for reluctance to truly live for God. Don't mistake your prudence for reluctance to truly live for God. I I often think of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was on track to become one of the top physicians in the United Kingdom. He was working under the personal physician of King George V. He was expected to have great influence as a respected Christian doctor in that country. He had trained many years for that, but he gave that life up to become a pastor and a preacher. And many around him told him that it was unwise. But he said, quote, We spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. He's talking about physicians. I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a distressed soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face eternity in hell. End quote. I'm not saying every physician should pursue the ministry. But if God has placed a burden on your heart to, to serve Him more fully and given you the capability to do so, you have a responsibility to live first and foremost for Him. And expect that your decisions for Christ will likely be opposed to giving your life to Jesus, doing something costly for Him, going against what is socially acceptable and expected will bring opposition. People around you, even Christians around you, may question your reasoning. Why would you want to live there? Why would you send your kids to school there? Why would you give up that desire? Why wouldn't you take that position? 
Why would you give that much away? Why, why would you adopt that child? Why would you open up your home to those strangers? Why wouldn't you go to another church if you can't find a spouse there? Why would you keep your kids from that? Just a few Sundays. There, these were the kinds of questions that Mary faced. Even other followers of Christ couldn't understand her devotion. Hers was a bold sacrifice. It was a costly sacrifice. It was an opposed sacrifice. But it was a beautiful sacrifice. It was a beautiful sacrifice. When the disciples opposed Mary, Jesus defended her. In verse 6, He told them, Leave her alone. He said, Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Why was Mary's sacrifice so beautiful? Why wasn't it a waste? Why, why was it beautiful to use tens of thousands of dollars of ointment in one dramatic act? Why was it noble? Because the intent of her sacrifice was pure. She understood the unmatched value of the one whom she anointed. She understood that sacrificing for him was far more important than giving to the poor in that moment. Jesus said in verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus knew that his time on earth was limited. The time that his disciples had with him was to be treasured. The bridegroom was still with his wedding guests. It wasn't a time for fasting yet. Rather, it was still a time of rejoicing and celebration. Now, don't mistake what Jesus was saying here. He wasn't saying that since the poor will always be around, you don't need to care for them. That wasn't his point. He was actually reiterating the truth that's found in Deuteronomy 15, 11, which called for Israel to open wide their hands to the needy and poor in their land because they are there, they are present. We also know that Jesus affirmed giving to the poor in his ministry many times in the Gospels. So Jesus wasn't saying that it's not important to do good to the poor, he was making the point that because he would soon die, it was important to worship him and honor him in light of that day. There would be ample opportunity to give to the poor later, but the opportunity to anoint their Lord was soon coming to a close. Mary's action wasn't a failure to obey the second greatest commandment. She didn't fail to love her poor neighbors when she broke the alabaster flask. Instead, her actions demonstrated that she was committed to obeying the greatest of commandments. She was loving her Lord with all that she had. And Jesus said in verse 8, She has done what she could. She gave everything she had. And he added, She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now we don't know if this was actually Mary's intended purpose. We don't know if she had thought that far ahead. It's possible because... She listened attentively to Jesus. She trusted Him, and it's very possible she had heard His predictions that He would suffer and die in Jerusalem. So maybe it was her intention to anoint Jesus for burial, but we can't say for sure. At the very least, it was a genuine act of love and worship. But Jesus made it clear that her anointing came at just the right time. By using up that whole flask of ointment and covering His body head to toe, she was preparing him for burial. That's because when Jesus died, if you remember, his body was rushed to a tomb. There wasn't enough time to perform the proper Jewish custom of covering his dead body with perfume and spices. So Mary's anointing really did function 
to serve as Jesus' only anointing in death. Mary's sacrifice was beautiful because it showed how much she valued her Lord and it was an act of genuine service to him. Finally, Mary's sacrifice was significant. It was a bold sacrifice. It was costly. It was opposed. It was beautiful. And it was significant. Jesus said in verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What Mary did wasn't a waste. Sure, the ointment was gone. I'm sure it wasn't used to feed or house or clothe a mass of needy people. But the memory of her deed would live on as the gospel of Christ was proclaimed. And it has. We're still talking about it today. You never know what impact your genuine act of devotion for the Lord will have in the annals of eternity. Through Mary's example, we find a model for how we should live for the Lord. We should be bold in our worship of Him. We should be willing to give up what has value to us for Him. We should expect to be opposed for those decisions. But we can trust that when we live this way, it will be beautiful to Him. And our actions will have eternal significance. Will you do something beautiful for the Lord? It's tragic when we are moved by the Holy Spirit to do something noble for Jesus and we fail to do it. We rationalize it away. We get occupied with other things. We ignore that God-given impulse, the Holy Spirit's work in our heart to to take a risk for Jesus, to to give something, to say something, to take a stand, to to do something in love. Ken Hughes has written that Jesus has a lot of strange things in his treasury. Widow's pennies, cups of water, broken alabaster vases. But the question for you is, does he have anything of yours? We've looked at the setting. Jesus was being hunted. We've considered the sacrifice and how Jesus is meant to be worshipped. Now let's read about the scoundrel briefly and see how Jesus was betrayed. Okay, The scoundrel in verses 10 through 11. Look with you on verse 10. It says that then Judas Iscariot, that's likely a reference to where he was from, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Remember the chief priests and scribes, they were in a bind. They wanted to kill Jesus, but they didn't know how to get to him without making a scene. Probably didn't even cross their minds that one of his closest companions would turn him in. But here we see that Judas, on his own initiative, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. And when they heard it, verse 11 says, they were glad. Of course they would be. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. But why? Why would Judas do such a thing? Well, Mark doesn't tell us. Maybe this incident that just occurred was a few days before was the tipping point. Maybe all of the talk about Jesus, by Jesus, I should say, about his death... All that talk that Jesus was doing about him suffering and going to be delivered up into the hands of men was finally sinking in for Jesus. Judas, sorry. Maybe he realized, Judas realized that Jesus wasn't going to actually bring about the kingdom he was hoping the Messiah would bring. We can't know for sure. But certainly, Judas was partially motivated by money. Matthew tells us that in 
Mark, Matthew 26, 15. And Luke tells us that he was influenced by Satan in Luke 22, 3. But what is emphasized in Mark is simply how Judas himself made the decision to betray Jesus. He was responsible. Judas was a scoundrel. There's such a marked contrast here, isn't there? You have Mary who is willing to sacrifice a large amount of money for her faith. And then you have Judas who was willing to to give up his faith for the sake of 30 silver pieces. He was willing to give up what he believed at one time to be true for the sake of short-term gain. Where do you find yourself in this story? Who do you most identify with? There may be some of you listening who are like the chief priests and scribes. You're, You're hardened to the message of Jesus. You'd rather not hear about him anymore. You think the world would be better off without him. I challenge you to ask yourself, do you think that way because it's really true? Or do you think that way because you're more concerned about preserving your current way of living? Maybe you're content with whatever success that you have achieved in life and you don't want Jesus to mess with that. I challenge you to be honest with yourself. I challenge you to, to truly consider Jesus again. There are some of you listening who are like Judas. You know Jesus. You're familiar with him. But you are on the brink of abandoning him for short-term gain or pleasure. Jesus doesn't excite you anymore. There are other things in your life that mean more to you right now. Beware of trading Jesus for something that will turn out to be just a trinket in the end. Now is the time to draw near to him again and remember why you first believed in him. And there are probably many of you listening today who are like the disciples. You're following Jesus. You've given up things for him in the past, but now you find it difficult to go all out for him. You're more concerned about living a successful life, doing enough of the right things and having a good reputation in this world than living a life of eternal significance. God is challenging you from his word today to be more like Mary, to live a life of of significance because you are living it completely for him. To be bold in your decisions for Him. To to be willing to to do things for Him that would be looked down upon by others. To to give up something in your life that hurts for Him. To give up maybe money. Or maybe a career goal. Maybe your your dream lifestyle. or, Or maybe it's your proximity to your family. Or maybe it's your reputation upon among a certain group of people. It's not like we aren't accustomed to sacrifice. Medical residents will deprive themselves of of sleep in order to become physicians. Entrepreneurs will burn the midnight oil for the sake of their startup. Moms and dads sacrifice all the time by plotting and planning and driving all around to their kids' activities so they can have a successful life. Some will slave away in the gym to be their best athletically. In in our success-driven world, all... These things are perfectly acceptable. We accept these things as Christians. We understand and appreciate that kind of sacrifice, but there is too little of that kind of sacrifice for Jesus. 
What are you willing to give up for Him? What have you sacrificed for Him recently? Has your professed allegiance to Christ cost you anything? Have you deprived yourself or or even your family of anything for Jesus? Is, Is there any inconvenience that you can think of recently that you have taken on for Him? We often want to squeeze Jesus in the church and our Christian duties into our predetermined schedules. We try to fit Him around our sports and club schedules and our work schedules and our travel plans and our kids' sleep schedules. But where's that willingness to just say, Lord, my life is yours. Everything I have is yours. I'm not going to have hold anything back. I'm not just going to sing all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. I'm going to live all I have is Christ. I won't try to fit you into my life anymore. I'm going to, instead, I'm going to barge into life with my alabaster flask ready to worship you. If you belong to Jesus, then you have an obligation to Him. He poured out Himself for you. If you understand the depth of your sinfulness and the mercy of Jesus in going to the cross for you, there is nothing too valuable to give up for Him. Be afraid. Be deathly afraid. Be eternally afraid of wasting your time and your gifts and your money and your affections on the things of this world. Be afraid of going to extremes regarding work and money and and politics and pleasure. But don't be afraid of wasting your resources and, and doing too much for the Lord. Unfortunately, the world may not deem you a success. But you will have lived a life of true significance. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are humbled and challenged by the the life of Mary, a life devoted to listening to her Lord, trusting in her Lord and His power, and even sacrificing all that she could for Him. Oh Lord, would you create in us a deep appreciation for our Lord Jesus, who he is and all that he has done for us. Help us to live our lives out of that appreciation, to have a real passion, to understand what it means to suffer and to endure for something that we feel is right and true. Oh, give us a passion for Jesus. He had a passion for us. He did so much. He was willing to experience betrayal and arrest and a trial and crucifixion for us. Help us to be willing to endure things and to give up things for Him. Oh Lord, I don't know what that's going to look like for each person here that is listening to this. But I pray that you would help us to ask that hard question and to see, Lord, if, if there is something that you want us to do for you, that we would take that step of faith that we would be bold, that we would be courageous, even in the midst of opposition, to do something costly for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May be our prayer as we sing more love to thee.